Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. We have had a short break, and I am super excited to be back kicking off this season six. But before I talk about season six and our upcoming guests and the other exciting things that we've got happening for this season, let me ask you, how are you? Are you well? Are you thriving? Or are you just getting by right now? I know we all have days and periods in life when we're just getting by. And I also know that when we're in those places or phases, there can be a really strong desire to fight it, to really push against the whole experience, to resent the challenge and the hard stuff, to feel like it's unfair and unreasonable, or we tell ourselves to get over it or get past it or let it go. And there's just all of these feelings when life is difficult, when we can feel stuck and we're angry and we might be frustrated and we might be overwhelmed and and we're resentful and it all just feels awful. But I thought I'd share something with you that I've learned, both as a psychologist and also just as a human being, as someone who's put some of this stuff to the test. And that is that the more we push against the hard stuff and those feelings, the more we think those thoughts of resentment and anger or despair, and the more we tell ourselves to get over it, we create a kind of monster. And that monster, those feelings just push back. So if you imagine yourself kind of head to head with this monster that represents your challenges or the problems you're facing and the emotions that surround it, and you just keep pushing, he keeps pushing back. And it's just physically and emotionally exhausting. But, and this is what I've learned through experience as well as the psych, if you step back and kind of step away from the monster, And just observe him over there and remind yourself that everyone has a monster. That's part of being human, that we all suffer at different times and in different phases of our life, both in big ways and small ways, and that life is hard sometimes. And the more we kind of become accepting of it and have just observed the monster is that what happens is that he just stands there too and he doesn't push back. He doesn't actually come after you. He doesn't get angrier. He just stays right there where he is, maybe getting quieter, maybe even getting smaller. He hasn't gone away. Your challenges or your problems or whatever your situation is hasn't gone away. It hasn't changed. But when we just accept and observe and stop pushing against it, it stops feeling quite so punishing. And often we can't change what happens in life. We have no control over that. But we do have control over how we respond. And this, is, I guess, is what it's all about, is how we respond to the monster. If we choose to fight him head on, that can be great at times. That can be a really proactive way to deal with it. 
But if we're fighting against something that we really can't change and we just find ourselves getting angrier and more hurt and more bitter and more resentful and it's not doing you any good, then maybe fighting isn't the right answer. Maybe it's time to just accept the monster, give him a little wave and get on with life. Now, I don't really know how I got onto that topic. (laughs) That's what happens in my intro sometimes. You get my stream of consciousness, usually prompted by conversations that I've been having with clients during the week. And I think that's what's happened here. But now we've traveled down that little tangent. Um, Let's come back to today's episode. And it's not entirely unrelated because today we have a guest with a fascinating story that created a bit of a monster in his life and in the life of others. And he has, over the years, found a way to quieten that monster. And now he talks to high school students about how to do the same. So let's find out a little more, shall we? With me today is Rob Hunter, who is not a psychologist or a neuroscientist or any type of scientist, as far as I'm aware. He is a teacher and has been a teacher with the Victorian Department of Education for many years. And he has an extraordinary tale to share with us. And I'm not going to give away too many of the details yet. I'm going to say welcome to Rob Hunter. Thanks, Alan. It's lovely to have you here. I have just finished reading your published book, Day Nine at Wareen. And I'm going to ask you to share the story with our listeners of what exactly happened to you as a teacher on your ninth day of your teaching career in a little public country or rural school here in Victoria, because it is an extraordinary tale. Thanks, Alan. How long have we got? Can I talk for the next uh, 10 hours? Then maybe you'll get an idea of what happened. I know. Well, look, we will have to, we'll just give the highlights perhaps because I will encourage everybody out there listening to go and get a copy and read the book so they can be as thoroughly absorbed in the tale as I was. Yes. But um, perhaps, can you just start with the beginning? What happened on that day in 1977? Yeah. So, as you said, it was my ninth day on the job. I had nine children in my school. And I was it as far as uh, the adult. I was the headmaster, the the art teacher, the PE teacher, the caretaker, uh, the bookkeeper, the works. And, uh, yeah, I let the children out for recess at 10.30am and they came racing back inside soon after saying, Mr Hunter, Mr Hunter, there's a man outside with a gun. And I went to the door thinking not too much of it, thinking that might have been somebody wanting to shoot a rabbit or something like that. But I was forcefully and very scarily met by this balaclava-hooded character, sweating profusely, puffing heavily and pointing this gun directly at my chest and swearing at me saying, get back inside or I'll effing shoot you. And the children were very uptight because they'd been threatened as well at this time. And we all went back inside, sat down, and he proceeded to tell us what was going to happen and ultimately he took us away and at gunpoint held us for ransom. So he's kidnapped yourself and this is the ninth day of your entire teaching career and you're 20 years old at this point, is that right? That's correct, yes. (laughs) I mean, so the whole of teaching is new to you, let alone, you know, this very unexpected experience and the children are just primary school age, aren't they? 
That's right, yes. There's three grade six girls, two grade five children, a boy and a girl, a grade four girl, a grade three girl and two grade one boys uh, who are only six. Yeah, so unbelievably the chains came out of this red bag that he had. We were uh, all chained in one long line to this one long chain with padlocks chained securely, chained to the wall, and he quickly got his vehicle from around the back road and loaded us up into this vehicle. Before he did, he separated me from the children and blindfolded me, gagged me, tied me up and uh, had me on the floor of this vehicle and the children lying down out of sight at the back of this one-ton Dodge utility and we then drove for around about two hours. Horrific, horrible darkness for me, helpless, children vomiting, myself vomiting, children crying and banging on the panels of the vehicle saying, stop, we want a drink. Yeah, I thought that maybe I would have got tipped out or shot and left for dead or something like this, um, but on we went. Yeah, so fairly horrific sorts of stuff, Alan. During this entire time, he he is literally threatening to, you know, blow your head off, et cetera, et cetera, and not just to you but also essentially to the children if anybody doesn't do exactly as he's asking at this stage. And you're in a pretty remote, quite hilly area, so hence, hence, you know, just a lot of motion sickness for everyone. You're obviously tied up and gagged and bound so you can't, see where you're going and my understanding is you were you were pretty much just in the footwell of the front passenger seat of this yeah yeah. on the floor with my chest sort of up on the on the seat sort of thankfully the gag had come off um, by the time I needed to vomit Uh, he'd been begun to talk to me because we were doing what he asked he he eventually calmed right down and we had a bit of a conversation I suppose he did most of the talking. I don't think I really answered many of his questions. But, yeah, so we did stop and post a ransom letter at um, a little town called Merbu North, and uh, that was a 10-page document apparently. Well, I didn't know it at the time but found out later that it was a 10-page document of unreasonable demands, which included the release of 17 prisoners of his friends and a lot of money and all sorts of other things, ammunition and guns, etc., drugs. So we proceeded for these two hours and then the unbelievable took place. It's what I call in the book a divine intervention, really, that just impeccable timing. We had an accident with a very – there was hardly any vehicles on this road. There was occasionally we'd pass something, but on this one hairpin bend in the area, we just the perfect timing met this vehicle and ploughed into the back wheel of it. It was a log, big logging truck that filled up the whole road going around this hairpin bend. And the kidnapper had no idea that the road was sort of impassable and uh, he ploughed into it and we got thrown back and we were lilting on the edge of the road, potentially going down this precipice. Um, We should have gone down the precipice except for the fact that there was a strong four or five-inch square solid wooden post 
next to my door, which I never saw, that stopped us from going down that embankment. So this would have been the whole utility with yourself, your your kidnapper and the nine children in the back, basically going mm. the edge off off the edge of a cliff, yeah. really, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. No seatbelts. It would have been horrific. There would have been, if there hadn't been uh, lots of deaths, there would have been lots of broken limbs and. Mm. Uh, it wouldn't have been nice at all. But you're not actually saved at this point, are you? No. It, it feels no. like a moment of salvation, but it, that's not mm. how it transpires. No, it, it becomes the game changer. Um, up until this point, he'd had things on his terms, but this is when things changed. Uh, the driver of that truck, he just happened to have his little brother with him that day, but those two men were also were kidnapped and the driver of that truck's name was Robin Smith. And he goes on to play a big part in this story later on, doesn't he? Mm. And so tell us what happens next. You're, you're there. He's basically taken these two individuals hostage as well. Mm. But you've got no vehicle, do you? Because the, the utility right. is out of action. The logging truck's no good to you. Yep. What, what does he do? So we wait for a long time. Another truck comes along with two more men in it. We're in the remotest place possible, it seems. Two more men come along in Robin Smith's second truck. Just by coincidence? Perhaps not so much coincidence because this is the track that these guys use, but the next bit is total coincidence. Mm. We wait for a, a good hour for another vehicle to come along after these because there's now five men lying down on the road chained with that chain that the children had. Mm-hmm. And the children are free to just sit over in the in the gutter at the side of the road at the foot of this embankment. Being remarkably stoic and capable, it seems, from the story. Beautiful kids, the beautiful sensations. These three grade six kids and the two grade five kids look after the other little ones. Uh, they're very much a family atmosphere the older ones taking responsibility and keeping calm. They kept calm. wasn't many tears. There was a few tears when there was vomiting and there was tears in the accident, but mm. ultimately there was a lot of sensible behaviour. I, I didn't know what to do, Alan, right back in the classroom. I did nearly grab the gun at one stage and I tried to get the children to walk outside when he left to get his vehicle and a few of these options to try and overcome this silly circumstance Mm. but ultimately I played it relatively cool and just sort of kept smiling to the kids and saying it's okay we'll just follow this through and it'll be okay sort of thing Um, not realizing in many ways the repercussions of what was happening Mm. I I was very naive 20 year old just flying by the seat of my pants Mm -hmm. But then at this remote place not far from what they called English's Corner, we've been going on a road called the Grand Ridge Road, which follows the Streslecky Ranges in this part of South Gippsland, a, a dirt road up and down, around and around mountains. So five men now lying flat down, chained together in this remote spot. We wait for about an hour for another vehicle to come. And the perfect vehicle comes along because if it had been a sedan, little car, I venture to suggest that us five men might have 
been left behind, perhaps with a bullet in our head, I don't know, with the children to himself. But as it turns out, a combi van with two beautiful women. Women who became, again, a big part of this story, particularly for the children, wasn't it? They became the caretakers for the children because you were literally unable to do anything to assist them. And these were ladies in their... 30s or 40s? Late late 40s, perhaps even early 50s. I call them angels um, in the book, two beautiful women uh, who the the kidnapper allowed them contact uh, with the children. I hadn't been able to get near the kids since we'd left the school and now chained up and set apart from the children. These women were able to cuddle, hold, console, cry. Well, the women didn't cry, but the children did on these women. Comfort them, Um, yeah. Comfort, beautiful care. They were godsends. And the vehicle was a godsend because um, we were all able to fit into it and uh, we were able to go on our way. It suited the kidnapper, but it also suited us. Mm. And then we, we drove for another two and a half or so hours till we found his campsite that he had set up for us. And you've got no idea at this stage really where you are or where you're going. You were relatively new to the area, although you're Victorian, you hadn't grown up or had much time spent in this part of Gippsland, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I I was at my wit's end. I, I was on the edge totally. Thankfully, these other four people, or the other now four blokes and two beautiful ladies, I was able to chat with briefly in the back of the vehicle while we're driving, and they had a good idea where we were, and they were positive, and they knew who the kidnapper was too. Mm -hmm. Because that's another little side to this story, isn't it? Yes. This was not the first time he'd done this, as it turns out. Can you tell us what what had happened Previously. So in 1972, he'd done this ridiculous stunt prior to me. Uh, he'd kidnapped Mary Gibbs and her six children who were at school that day from Faraday Primary School near Bendigo. Uh, that would happened in 72. And he, he was caught and he was put in jail with his accomplice, Robert Boland. And he was angry about this because he didn't think Boland was uh, guilty. And he went to jail angry and he escaped from jail angry five years later to do the repeat Mm. offence. And I'm guessing just because of your age at the time, the fact that this had happened previously, you probably hadn't connected those. I mean, you must have only then been, what, 14 or 15 years old when that previous event Mm, had happened. That's right. I'd been a student in year 11 at my high school and I'd remembered the event. And when the lady said to me in the back, hey, you know who this is, don't you? And I said, no, I've got no idea. And they said, it's Edwin John Eastwood who did the Faraday kidnapping. And I thought, "Uh uh-huh, okay. Mm. So eventually we get to this campsite and we camp there for the night. Uh, Us five men are chained around this massive tree. And that's where we spend the night. And it's relatively calm. The women are still able to console the children and they were able to sleep with the girls. The boys sleep in the camper van. And around about sort of later in the morning at about 5 a.m. or 4 a.m., we, we fall asleep. And including Eastwood, the kidnapper, falls asleep. And Robin Smith, by this stage, has been able to get his hand out of the chain by a 
a very subtle little trick that he applied, uh, which Eastwood didn't realise. And um, a bit hard to explain. You've got to read the book. Yep, read the book. I understand that one, everyone. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Read the book. <laughs> yeah. But he, he was able to get his hand out of the chain and then he was crept off in the night, hoping against hope that Eastwood was asleep and he risked his life. He risked taking a bullet. He would have been a dead man. I'm, I'm quietly confident of it. He ran pretty much 10 kilometres to the nearest farmhouse to call police and mm. set up the alert. I mean, there's a bit of high drama then when Eastwood awakes to find that Robin Smith is gone and he's bundled you all up back into the combi van mm. kind of instantly, doesn't he? And then... There's a little bit of, there's a whole, you know, something out of a movie, police chase with shootouts and all sorts of things that happen that ultimately lead to your rescue. We're saved, we're rescued. The police are heroic in this as well. They, they probably weren't perfect. They, they were trying to shoot out the tyre and a few bullets went in places that they shouldn't have gone, but thankfully no one got hurt except the kidnapper was shot in the leg when he was arrested. So the rest is... History, really. Um, <laughs> but the trouble when you have trauma like that, is, which is why we're talking about this, Alan, isn't it? That, yeah. Uh, trauma yeah. like that doesn't go away. No, and I note, Rob, that, you know, even a couple of, when, when we first mentioned Robin Smith and then the ladies who came along in the combi van, you know, you, you there was emotion for you. that You were starting to tear up a little even now and we're talking, I'm trying to do the maths, 39 years Later, is that a 42? 42, 42, 42. Goodness, I can't even add up myself. I should be able to work that out because I was about four in 1977. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 42 years later, that this is still an emotional That's experience it. for you talking yes. about it. And for me, it's a gratitude emotion, it's an emotion of thankfulness for for what Robin did and for those women turning up. Gratitude. For the way in which it turned out for good. And I think, Alan, you're going to highlight this in a minute, but I spend a lot of time talking with secondary students these days running my kidnapped teacher talks, Health After Hurt. And I say to them, you know, you can focus on the positive about this. I'm not thankful for the kidnapping itself, although. In a way, I am now because it gives me an opportunity to talk about these things. But at the time, I focused on how thankful I was for these people like Robin Smith and those two women Mm. that I call angels affectionately Mm. in the book. So we'll come to that in a moment. I'm interested to know what what were the after effects because this is not, I can't imagine that there was kind of critical incident counselling rolled out for Mm. for you or, you know, that just wasn't (laughs) the done thing in the 1970s. So what what was the kind of the approach in terms of, you know, how you dealt with or were encouraged to deal with the incident immediately following and, and the effects on the children as well? Yeah, well... It was a classic case of post-traumatic stress disorder, I think, that we all experienced in a very naive, uninformed, uneducated uh, manner. And essentially, we got back on the horse. Um, we went back to school. The four eldest children went into Lee and Gather, and nobody really knew what to do. The education department didn't 
give us any counselling. Um, in those days, it hardly existed. Psychologists and psychiatrists were around, but you had to be very hard case to be going to that sort of therapy. Mm. Um, yeah, so what were the repercussions? Well, there was a lot of flashbacks. There was a, a lot of feelings of, you know, what do I do with this? I think there was a danger for all of us to become self-absorbed and to overplay the events because it was national sensationalism. Mm, mm, would have been all over the headlines, I can imagine. In fact, you talk in the in the story in that campsite of being able to hear some of the mm. radio announcements late at night saying, you know, mm. a teacher and students have disappeared from this school. At this stage, nobody knew where you were or what had happened. The ransom note had been posted, but we're talking about the days of snail mail. It was going to take mm, a while to get to its right. destination, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, so it was all over the papers for days on end, particularly in Victoria. Uh, for a good week, there was there was articles and photos and feature front page, second page feature articles. So that was sort of dangerous in a way, and you don't quite know how to deal with all of that. I had, um, I think, episodes of. Um, where I had palpitations and revisiting some of the things, a particular incident when I nearly grabbed the gun when it was in the kidnapper's back pocket while he was leaning over, chaining up a student. I could have reached the gun. It was well within my reach. And for a long time afterwards, whenever I thought of that, that I nearly grabbed the gun and could have done something very silly, I had hot sweats and palpitations and red face and all that sort of stuff happened. Mm. So they're the sort of things that came after it. Sleepless nights. Family were very good. Friends were very good. The families of the children, of the students were good too, but, but we still didn't get fully in touch with our feelings. Mm. Uh, we never really had an opportunity to go in depth to some of the details of it. Mm. So the mindset back in those days was really, and, and probably really until relatively recently when we think about it, was, you know, it's best not to talk about it. Let's just get yes. on with our lives and, yes. you know, almost pretend that it didn't happen, that that that, that would be the healthy option, which we now know yes. is not the healthy option. But yes. it was a very different time and we deal with the information we have to hand. Yes. And that was certainly my family's option default position. Uh, let's not take, make too much a fuss about this, otherwise uh, it might take root or something. Mm. And that was the parents of the children's position as well. Um, no opportunity really to talk it through and uh, mm. debrief properly. The, the best opportunity to debrief in actual fact was with, the, with my police statement. I had a wonderful policeman who just kept on I think for nearly three hours, allowing me to recreate and uh, state all of the details of, of what, I ha what had happened. Mm. But still not really an opportunity, I suppose, because, I'm, you know, as, as I read the book and, you know, this was part of what you described was that not only were you fearing for your own life, but you were responsible at this point for those nine children. You know, that, that yes. was your both yes. your professional obligation but also kind of your moral obligation at that point so you know yes. there's, there's a lot of yes. layers there in terms of yes. 
the trauma that you know responsibility that's right yeah and i agonized over the parents what the parents thought and Mm. how they were going to cope how they did cope there was a little bit of a a question of why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that which was just fair what was fair enough and there was even a question about my integrity had i actually kidnapped them initially because no one knew what had happened, did they? they nobody else had yeah. necessarily connected the dots to Eastwood or... That's right. Mm. It wasn't until police arrived, had been there for some hours, that they connected the dots. Mm. This was, in fact, the Faraday kidnapper. Mm. Probably they didn't think he'd try the same stunt twice. <laughs> no, that's right. And, <laughs> and I must admit, Alan and listeners, I wasn't looking... I, my appearance wasn't um, a professional look. <laughs> You were a 20-year-old in 1977. Yeah, I had a ridiculous beard and unkept hair that uh, made me look a little bit like a bush ranger rather than an educator. (laughs) And do you think, Rob, that your youth in this situation, you know, whilst that brought with it a number of challenges, I'm wondering in terms of the psychological implications, you know, whether maybe that helped rather than hindered? Mm, I'm, I'm sure it did. It really did help because youthfulness and naivety combined together. Um, I was involved with a lot of community things, football, cricket, local church, family, girlfriend, great, lots and lots of friends and a really good mate that I was living with at the time as well. And so my social calendar was always full. I just got back on with my life really and the kidnapping faded um, into the background, really, mm-hmm. which was partly a good thing, but in some ways I probably didn't fully deal with it. Although I think because of the there's a few principles that I now apply to the my kidnap teacher talks that I do in schools. There's a few principles that did get me through this that I think essentially gave me a, a state of being healed from that trauma. So tell us a bit about this. So these are presentations that you're now giving, as you said, to high school students, mm. and it is called Health After Hurt. So it's looking at, you know, using your experience to talk through, you know, how, how do we deal with difficult things in our lives, perhaps not to the same level of trauma that you've been through, but, you know, lessons learned that we could all apply, I suppose, to our own experiences. Yeah. So, can you just talk us through some of the, the key topics that you address in these conversations? Great, I'd love to, yeah. And the students just love it. or It's become a vehicle to be able to talk about these healthy principles because they're gobsmacked by the story. They're sitting on the edge of their seat and before they know it, they've heard these healthy principles, which in some circumstances would be boring, but because of the context, um, pretty sure they they get it as well as they possibly could. Mm. The first one, which I mentioned earlier, was gratitude. I remember listing in my mind how thankful I was for Robin Smith, for the two women, for the police, awesome heroic things that some of those guys did, the timing of the accident, thankful that it had that scary accident that could have killed us all but in actual fact became a game changer became a catalyst for some for our safety afterwards i was thankful that 
I still had my job, that the children hadn't been hurt. And I remember focusing on these things. So I say to the students, if I wasn't that, what's the opposite of that? And they usually just say, to be ungrateful. <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, that is the opposite of being grateful. <laughs> the literal but, opposite. Yeah. But um, I, I could have focused on how hard I'd had it or how 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 sad I was or how my career had been stuffed up or my life had been stuffed up or, you know, I'd lost my four best kids out of the school and, and laboured that point and dwelt on that and sort of become self-absorbed in my own hurts and my pains. But gratitude, I think, helped so much in have, continuing to have a positive mindset moving forward. Mm. It's a way of reframing things, isn't it, to be able to yeah. say, oh, I do have a choice here, which gives you power, just knowing yeah. that you have a choice and I have a choice here and how I think about this situation. I can choose a way that helps me to feel better, stronger, more resilient, or I can choose a way that is going to pretty much take me down, you know, what is often a negative pathway and a negative spiral. Absolutely. And so I say to the students, what about you guys? So what do you, you know, you and I, we we probably all do this sometimes, that we wish we were smarter like that other kid and more attractive or more handsome or better at sport or had more money or better house or better family or something. Instead of, hey, hang on, we have got all these other things. Let's be thankful for what we've got. And I mentioned, you know, that statement, I complained when I had no shoes until I met someone who had no feet. Mm-hmm. You know, just a matter of perspective. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I also like telling them the story of Nick Voinchich and the guy with no arms and no legs, mm. no worries, yep. you know, who becomes an international motivational speaker despite is no arms and no legs. Mm. They get that too. Yeah. So lovely engaging ways to help kids to understand the concepts that you're talking about, concepts that, as you say, would not otherwise be a bit dry or boring if we talk about, you know, certainly as a psychologist I'd say, well, this is about psychological reframing and perspective taking, but that's not very engaging for a teenager. <laughs> that's right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so that it becomes a conduit to talk about these those principles. Yeah. Mm. So gratitude is one of these themes that you talk about. What are, what are the others? So number two is forgiveness, and that's a tricky one. Mm. I say to the students and I pause for effect, hey, I chose to forgive Eastwood. And I would then look at them and I say, again, I chose to forgive him. And I said, would you do that? And uh, no. Couldn't do that. No. So then I use the illustration. It's a quite a powerful image of the chain that was wrapped around my wrist. If I hadn't forgiven him, it would be like that chain was attached to him with anger and bitterness and resentment and the desire to get it even and revenge. But I'd be dragging him around with me for the rest of my day, weighed down with those angry thoughts, you know. But Forgiving him released, unlocks the lock, which frees the chain and allows me to move on freely uh, into my future, unencumbered, unhindered from those emotions that I could have um, hung on to. Mm. 
And it's such an interesting way to think about forgiveness, isn't it? I think you say in the book you, you do have some, you know, like a little kind of Q&A sort of thing, you know, frequently asked questions, I suppose, where you, you respond to those and you can't forget what he did. No. You're not, you can't, it will always be there. Mm. But by mm. forgiving him, it is releasing those chains. Yeah, and I sort of all, I also add it's not saying it was all right. Mm. It's not saying it was okay, mate, you know, do it again whenever you like sort of thing. Mm. No, it was not okay. Mm. It was relatively easy for me to forgive too, Alan, because justice had been done. He'd been caught. Yeah. Uh, it was a clear-cut case. You know, I feel for a lot of other people who justice is often not done. People, the perpetrator is not caught. Uh, the victim continues to lament the fact that their perpetrator is has got away with it. Mm, mm. So that becomes very difficult for people to to try and forgive, and it becomes it's a process. Mm. But there's some other aspects to it that, that I like to explain too. That forgiveness is like forfeiting the right, if you like, to stay angry and to want revenge. It's letting go of that inclination because mm. that's our natural state, isn't it, to, to sort of, you know, he hurt me and I'm hurting. Hold I'm on hurting tightly back. to that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> cling to that. Um, so it's sort of like a gift to be able to let go. Well, it's, it's not easy to let it go, but to be able to do it requires a lot of guts, I guess, it's not an easy decision no. and it's often a process and it, we often need counsellors or chaplains or psychologists or somebody to help us go through that process, yeah? And the thing that struck me too about the, you know, framing forgiveness like that, I think often when we think about forgiving someone, it is more of that, oh, that's okay, it's all right, you know, I forgive mm -hmm. you. So it, mm -hmm. it's like us sort of bestowing forgiveness on them like they deserve it somehow. Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. the way you frame it here, it's really got nothing to do with the other individual. It's, it's no. forgiveness for your sake. I have yeah. to forgive the situation, forgive what's happened to me in yeah. order for me to move on. Absolutely. And, and, if I, and I say to the students, if I hadn't forgiven um, and I was dragging him around, I said, who's that hurting? Mm. Is that going to hurt him? Is he going to, am I getting him back by hanging on to this? Uh-uh, he doesn't even know. He's no. going on with his life yeah. or he's in jail or whatever. Um, it's only me that gets hurt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of a no-brainer in a way, but still it's, it's not easy to forgive. I say to the kids or the students, it's, for me it was just a decision. I, I knew I needed to let go. And it was a prayer, really. God, I forgive him. I let go. And I do also explain that sometimes, you know, for, for some people, it, you know, going through where they write out on a piece of paper how hurt they've been and the emotions they feel and what happens. And then with a friend or with a counsellor, they put a match to it. Mm. And then let it go. You know, okay, it's gone. I'm letting it go. Mm. Or I throw it off a bridge or something. I'm not uh, advocating littering, <laughs> but but symbolic doing, bridge, <laughs> doing something like that that's 
got a bit of imagery to it uh, that helps you let go of that pain. Mm. So gratitude, forgiveness. Is there another yeah. theme in there that you like to talk these students through? Yeah, I like the heading outward focus, having an outward focus, reaching out to other people and getting over yourself and being kind to somebody else is so healthy because <laughs> you forget about yourself for that moment when you reach out to this other person. You know, for kids at school, it might be a help you pick up your books that you just dropped or something, or just taking an interest in another person. I love that saying, what you sow is what you reap. Students at school say, what does that mean? And they, they don't get the word reap very well. I explain that reap is about harvesting, but... But to simplify it, what you give is what you get. You give lots of kindness and lots of thoughtfulness and consideration to people. It comes back to you and it's so good. Mm. Whereas if you give rubbish, crap, um, nastiness, hatred, it'll come back. I sort of skipped this, I suppose, but at the beginning I talk about hurt people who hurt people and the opposite of that is a hurt person who's prepared to, okay, I've been hurt, but I'm going to let go of it and I'm going to reach out to somebody else and be kind. And all of a sudden, the opposite happens. I'm reaching out in kindness to someone and it actually comes back to me, which is really the opposite of what a bully does. Hurt people hurt people and we take it out on them, our loved ones. So if we don't deal with this well, hey, uh, we end up being a, an abusive husband or an abusive father or a, a bullyish teacher I could have become. But in actually reaching out to other people in kindness, a lot of the negatives become undone mm. and you turn it into good. So really the, the role there of just that human connection, which we know is so important to people's mm. well-being, just connecting yes. with others. And then, yeah, acting with kindness, acting with compassion. And I wonder whether too. I know certainly in positive psychology, the field in which I work, we talk about the role of having a sense of meaning and purpose in mm. our lives for people's well-being and, and how even just those acts of kindness, how helping other people, perhaps helping, you know, the volunteering or just doing things that are outside of ourselves that contribute to others might yep. be tapping into a bit of that sense of meaning and purpose, which we know helps yes. to boost our well-being. Yes, yes. It's a bit of a default position for a lot of us when things are going bad, we sort of look inward, don't we? I know I have in the past and you sort of, you know, poor me, nobody loves me, everybody hates me sort of <laughs> stuff, and you you want to just indulge in a bit of a pity party. But to be able to get over yourself and to reach out um, and defy our tendencies to become a bit self-absorbed really just changes everything. And all of a sudden we realise, oh, okay, it's not just me that's in this world. I've actually got a job to do. And it gives you such a buzz, doesn't it, when you know you've been able to help somebody else. It's very fulfilling mm. and adds meaning and purpose to your life, like you just said. Yeah, so that out, just the outward focus, so forgiveness, yeah. gratitude, and mm. outward focus, so contributing 
to yeah. others, you know, and, yeah. and seeing where you can be kind and, and think outside of yourself a little bit, even if yeah. just to give yourself a rest from being inside your own head, I think yes, it'd be worthwhile. Exactly. Yes. So they're the, they're the first three. And then my final one, which in sort of is partly wrapped up in it all in a way, is having something to believe in. Or for me, I, I use the words uh, having a strong foundation, something that you can build your life upon or a set of beliefs uh, or a structure. For me, it was my Christian faith. Um, but I say to the students, it doesn't have to be necessarily a faith or or necessarily a Christian faith, but something that will give you a real purpose and a meaning that it will give you something to build upon. The beauty about my Christian faith was that it got me doing those other three things. I knew it was right to show display gratitude. I'd been forgiven, so I forgave. And the example within the Christian faith is to reach out in kindness and love to other people. So that was sort of the way in which it worked so well for me. And then there's 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 some great causes for people to believe in and to follow, but that was what was really helpful for me. Mm. And do the kids, when you're talking about that, do the kids have ideas or examples of things that work for them as, as a kind of a foundation or a set of structures? Yeah, well, I, th- I think they get it. I know that a lot of them just love sport mm-hmm. and they want to sort of live for sport, which I think is a good ideal in a way. But the trouble is with sport, you know, once your body gets a little bit older, you know, you can't do it, but you can still be interested in it. Mm. But it probably doesn't help you with some of those other areas like forgiveness or gratitude or, but, you know, there's some heroic people in the sporting field. I think of Neil Danaher, you know, what motivates that beautiful man? I I don't know. I'd like to get inside his head. You know, what's what's his firm foundation Mm. made him so heroic? I think there must be something pretty deep there whether it's a faith or just a a strong others-centred mentality, I I don't know. Mm. But as somebody said on a Facebook post after that, he'd done his heroics again, I reckon he should be Australian of the year, that bloke. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Yeah. I'm wondering too whether, so as you're talking about those sort of firm foundations and to my mind just having a clear sense of core values, I suppose. I know the the primary school that my children go to, and I think this is not uncommon now in primary schools, but I I do know that it's it's really well lived at our primary school is just having those values. So for them, it's care, excellence, respect, community, and something else that I've forgotten, or maybe it's just the four. I don't know. I need to find out from the kids they'd remember. Is it kindness? I don't know if it's kind of care, excellence, respect community but anyway it's a language that they use it is something that they do come back to I know I do it with the kids because I know them so when I see them behaving in a way that I say well you know what I don't think that's really showing care and respect is it (laughs) so I can use the language back and I I think but you know for kids it's a lovely model to have of these sort of you know set of structures that are just you know these are, are ways that we behave these are helpful ways for us to behave and we have words around them and language and we can pick out examples of you know when and and why that feels good absolutely and um the primary school that i've got a lot to do with at the moment has those core values as well Mm. respect 
kindness, mm-hmm. uh, community, um, and like you, I can't remember what the fourth one is. <laughs> it's always a list. You can never remember the last one on the list. <laughs> yeah. And how do kids respond to this? I mean, I so I have read the testimonials on your website and I will link to that in the show notes for this episode that people can go and have a look. It seems very well received and I know you said that having that you know, the engaging story that gets them on the edge of their seats and kind of opens yes. their minds yes. up then to the content that you share. Is that the kind of response you're getting from kids? Yes, yeah. Teachers almost always say, um, Rob, these kids haven't behaved like this. I haven't seen them so well behaved <laughs> all year, you know. Um, they were so attentive and so engaged. So, yeah, they are responding really well. I guess, I mean, I'm hopeful that those healthy principles will sink in. Most of them are very engaged, but I know just because I'm used to working with with students that it won't necessarily sink in for a lot of them. But I just hope it still might be a link in the chain for them or a, a piece in the puzzle that, when somebody else then says something along the oh, yeah, that's right, that's what that bloke talked about who got kidnapped, mm. um, that's a good principle. Okay, I understand that now. Mm. Sort of and that, that's often what I say when I'm, I'm working. I work with adults in workplaces, but even again, yes. so, you know, often you're introducing concepts that can be complex and that don't, and I often say, you know, sometimes these things won't land right away. It, it could be weeks, could be months, could be even years when something else happens yes. and all of a sudden this idea sort of, you know, there's a, it's almost like it, it gathers enough weight in your mind that something drops and you go, oh, yeah, that's what that meant yeah. or oh, I kind of, I see it now. So, yeah, yeah that's yeah. always my, it's just the hope <laughs> that it's going yeah. to land at a useful point. Terrific, Alan. Yeah. Yeah, so Kidnap Teacher Talks, Health After Hurt. Mm-hmm. I should say, mention too about the book. So day nine at Wurin, yes. um, the students are mesmerised by the book. I, I always give away a copy to each year level and, and then some lucky student who ha- happens to say the right thing at the right time <laughs> says, earns a book if they you like. They get a copy too. And the rest of the kids say, oh, I want one. Can I have one? Can I have one? But um, I'll present one to the school as well. But this book, now is published by Wilkinson, which is um, fantastic. It's a little bit better than my self-published effort. And it's now available in uh, bookshops right across the country, really. And if it's not in that in your bookshop near you, <laughs> you can go online and um, order it online as well. Order a copy. Yeah. And I will put links to the book. As you say, it's published by Wilkinson Publishing in the show notes for this episode so that people can find out where to get their copy. It is a fantastic read. I demolished it in a matter of a couple of days thoroughly. I always feel funny saying I enjoyed a book like this because I don't feel like I should be enjoying your terribly difficult story. But as a, as a reader, I really enjoyed the read, which was, which was great link to your website so people can find out a bit more about your mm. presentations and seminars that you give. I know we have a lot of teachers who listen in, so they may well be very interested in getting you along to share your story with their students um, and introduce some of these ideas. Yes. Cover from the challenges that life. Yep. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate your time and sharing your story. Best of luck with it.
Great. And I've had a good look at your website too, Alan, and um, seen a lot of that awesome work that you're doing. And yeah, well done you because um, I reckon that's inspiring and so supportive and helpful for so many people who are who you're working with. So, and the, I'm sure that podcasts will continue to have a great impact. I hope so. That's the aim. (laughs) Thank you again, Rob. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you. Okay. Thanks. That was Rob Hunter, author of Day Nine Wareen, Kidnapped with Nine Children, a true account of the crime that shocked Australia, published by Wilkinson Publishing and available now online and in bookstores. And it is a ripping yarn. If you're a true crime fan, do get yourself a copy. I thoroughly enjoyed mine. We have links to the book and to Rob's high school talks in the show notes for this episode. So visit potential.com.au forward slash podcast. And there you'll also find a full transcript for the episode. More about Rob, his bio, and some of the other resources that we mentioned during our conversation. And if you're keen to keep in touch with the podcast and the great guests that we have coming up in season six, as well as getting hold of our favourite positive psychology and self-development resources hot off the press, please join our mailing list. There are links on the Potential Psychology website, potential.com.au, and you'll also find links to subscribe on our social media accounts. So just search for Potential Psychology. Next week... We are talking fears and phobias and obsessions with our expert, Dr. Celine Gelgetch. And here is Celine to tell you a little bit more. The anxiety centre of our brain, which is known as the amygdala, largely controls emotions. When that's heightened, it starts to shut down our frontal lobes from working. And our frontal lobes are responsible for higher order stuff. So like problem solving, reasoning, logic, attention, concentration, decision making, the stuff with me really (laughs) and so if our ability to reason and logic is shutting down we're then functioning purely from the emotional center of our mind and that problem solves but from an emotional perspective rather than a logical perspective quick what did Celine do last time she was in this situation that made this go away and it doesn't have to make logical sense it's just whatever got rid of the distress but then when everything calms down the amygdala is like okay great I've done the job And then the frontal lobes come back online again and then you think back and you go, what the hell is that about? Because logic's kicking back in. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. The whole PP team appreciates it. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who might also like to thrive and flourish. We'd really appreciate that too. And until I see you next, have a great week and thanks for listening.